This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning. Welcome to NSPS Radio Hour. I'm your host, Kurt Sumner. I'm pleased to have with me today Stan Emmerich, a professional licensed surveyor in Missouri and one who has been on our show before, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have at least read some of the things that Stan has put out, if not heard him before. Welcome to the show, Stan. Thank you very much, Kurt. I'm happy to be here. For the audience, I'll remind you that when Stan joined me about a year ago, not not quite a year ago, but pretty close to a year ago, um, we were talking about Joseph C. Brown surveys uh, and projects that have, have been conducted uh, on his surveys, and actually we're here to kind of pick up on a, another aspect of that. Today we're going to talk about the Osage Treaty Line Initiative that has been undertaken by the Missouri Society of Professional Surveyors uh, to uh, commemorate the 200th anniversary of the Osage Treaty Line, which Stan is going to tell us all about and talk about uh, the work, what, what it was, why it occurred, um, and I guess is is this a, a another in a series of activities by the by the state society on on Brown's work, or do these things kind of come up when somebody mentions them? I don't know if you guys have a plan laid out for, for what you're going to do. Ironically, it's a collection of both of those. Uh, mostly we are surveying different, an- or celebrating different anniversaries that have occurred here, both in Missouri, throughout the fifth principal meridian, which is a good piece of the land acquired during the Louisiana Purchase. It just so happens that Brown being the most prominent surveyor in the territory, he's involved with a lot of these activities. So uh, this is another one of his, as you may recall from last year, what we were celebrating then for the most part was the 200th anniversary of the 5th Principal Meridian, and Brown was involved with renting the baseline for that piece. And connected with that, We dedicated a monument to him and his works at a cemetery in St. Louis that uh, we wanted to serve notice to everybody of uh, his prominence both in the historical record there locally as well as in the entire state of Missouri. Now, there it seems there's a, a number of Browns who who are, are I don't think we're talking about the same person. I think Cur- Curtis Brown may be the other one. Um, our friend out in uh, uh, in California writes a lot about his work. I don't know if they were related in any way, or if the C in Joseph C stands for Curtis, but I don't think that's true. No, it, it's short for Cromwell. We also have a Norman Brown here here in Missouri who's. Recently retired, but is also well-known, probably known by a lot of folks that are familiar with surveys in this area. He was kind of the go-to guy on the history of surveying in this area for a number of years, and he also has written a little bit. I remember uh, maybe not the first time, but one of the first times I ever met Norman was at an event in Missouri, and I think there was some cooking going on. And maybe people are spending the night out on a project somewhere, and I, I just remember him being out there doing some cooking. Could very well be the case. He was known for that. Yeah, <laughs> that was my recollection. You know, his mold was uh, odd to a lot of people. He looked like an old-time surveyor, kind of crusty, yep. had the beard. 
like to dress up in period piece, kind of like what the reenactors do today. And in fact, he was doing a presentation at a local seminar in St. Louis where he was waiting out in the hallways. This happened to be in a junior high school. He was waiting out in the hallway ready to be introduced, and a teacher drifted up on there and wasn't quite sure who he was and was in the process of wanting to shoo him away without really realizing the breadth and depth of that man. You know, this guy's got a master's degree in engineering as well as pronounced in history, and she just wasn't quite sure just from his appearance as to who he might be humorous little story that we've shared with you. Yeah, yeah I, can under, I can understand her confusion, um, uh, that's for sure. But uh, it just goes to show you that uh, uh, appearances do affect people and oftentimes will lead people to draw the wrong conclusions. That's right. Uh, yeah, quite often, you know, we, we take the book at face value without ever digging, digging into it to see the depth of the knowledge that might be contained inside very, very, very true. Well, I don't know. We've got a, a number of things to talk about this morning, and I don't know if you want to start about the project itself or if uh, I know there's, that you guys have established a, a bounty program for finding uh, yeah. milepost. And so I'll let you begin wherever you like. I'm just going to start with a little background history of the territory. You know, the beauty of the history, both in our areas and everywhere, is how well and interesting things are connected that we don't often think of. You know, what drove a lot of this work recently after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 was um, the War of 1812 with the British trying to uh, secure our freedom once and from all, and all from them. And as a result of that war, a lot of the soldiers were offered military bounties, lands, uh, as payment for their services. And as that migration from the colonies headed westward, with the purchase and the expansion of Northwest Territory, a lot of new immigrants were coming into this territory. And the one thing the government was afraid of was obviously the interaction with the Native American tribes. And so part of that process of clearing the way for expansion was to secure titles, the Indian titles, to these lands. And so this particular lines that we're running, talking about today, uh, initiated from treaties with the Osage Indians in 1808 and 1809. And then, short period of time after that, at the end of the War of 1812, there were several treaties near St. Louis to a place called Portage to Sioux, kind of near the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi, where several of the Indian tribes, both in the Northwest Territory and Louisiana Territory, were extinguishing their rights and being pushed westward. Well, out of that process of this treaty with the Osage is a new boundary was set that was going to be the first boundary line of the fledgling state of Missouri in its original petition in 1817, that the line was going to run from this Fort Osage south to the, from the Missouri River, south to the Arkansas River, and then another line was going to be struck to the north. This, in effect, was the western boundary of the United States of America for a short number of years. And in this particular case, as we'll get into a little more in depth, the story we're telling here and trying to recover is Joseph Brown runs this southern line from the fort from the Missouri down to Arkansas. Another surveyor prominent in our history, John Sullivan, runs the northern line. And, and the event we're going to have at the fort on Saturday is going to talk a little less about 
Sullivan's line, because his line comes back through history. It defines the boundary between Missouri and Iowa and a few counties in Missouri. But Brown's line, shortly after being run, all but evaporates. It only stays in existence for a few years before it's run over by the rest of the subdivisions of the townships and sections through the territory. And that's part of the interest of the story to us. This guy makes a marvelous effort, an amazing feat to get this accomplished. And not long after that, it's gone. And uh, you were talking about the treaties. Um, what, what? How much evidence of those or documents from those are still around? Are they in the archives in D.C. somewhere, or are they in local archives? Or I'm sure they're in our national archives. A good deal of that work is reproduced in the American state papers mm-hmm. and in the Missouri's territorial papers, at least the local stuff is. But a, a good portion of the history is there to be recovered, and We've actually got a few of these, in particular the Osage Treaty, we've made available on our uh, society website. We've put a database out there to help surveyors kind of appreciate the history here and kind of get involved in some of the things we'll talk here in a minute about, about trying to recover evidence of this line that's been gone for 200 years. So we've made some of that available. uh, I'm sure anyone that's interested in this would certainly be able to recover that information with a search. Now, I was just kind of curious about that because I didn't know if information about the line itself or if the line was used to uh, mark property boundaries or whatever down through time and so there was evidence maybe in record books or that kind of thing or if, as you had said, it, the line kind of got run over by other other activities. I, so I was just curious about how how that lineage of, of the documentation had carried forward? It is interesting, and maybe we'll discuss this in a later segment, but there's only one township in Missouri that actually closes on this line for a number of years. Um, they ran several standard parallels through the state at about this same time, and three or four of those will actually intersect the boundary and make notes to it. That's kind of helped us today kind of figure out where things are. But beyond that, and even in the one county that they did actually close on the line, in a number of years after that, they extinguished those monuments and pushed the rest of the township to the west out to the current boundary of Missouri. The current boundary of Missouri is about 20, 24 miles west of where this line would be. Mm-hmm. So for a period, Missouri is a little thinner than it is today, and then uh, we run on further to west. So was that expansion of the line going westward, did that have something to do with the whole um, the, the public land setup sections and, and uh, that kind of thing, or was there some other event that caused that? Well, actually, it, there were several versions or petitions for the state of Missouri that uh, obviously drove these boundaries. The, the treaty with the Osage was originated about a decade before Missouri was really starting to prepare for statehood. And as your leader, your readers, uh, listeners might recall, what drove Missouri's entrance into the states was the Missouri Compromise, which was a fairly significant piece of federal legislation that brought Missouri and Maine into the Union at the same point in time. And, the, and obviously the driving force in a lot of this was slavery. And uh, in this particular case, the 
compromise was to set the demarcation line between free and slave states at what amounts to the southern boundary of Missouri. It's uh, latitude 3630, with Missouri being the rare exception that they were going to be allowed to have slaves beyond that, but nowhere else north of that line. And I'm sure your listeners are well aware that's a significant line through history, the line between Virginia and Carolinas, Kentucky and Tennessee, and actually even parts of uh, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and that territory out there. That This is a significant line in history, and for a full, short period of time, this was going to be the western boundary of this area of the United States. Unfortunately, seven years later, that's extinguished. The lines moved to the west, to the mouth of the Kansas River, and our friends Joseph Cromwell Brown also runs that western boundary of Missouri. Well, we're about the end of our first segment, so it'd be a good time for us to take a break and come back and then get into a bit more of the, of the detail on, on this, particular, uh, this particular line. So okay. let's go to that first break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're, we're back with Stan Emmerich today. I forgot to mention, Stan, that when we went in, that you're actually the, the chair of the MSPS History Committee, and you're also on the, on the board That's uh, correct. Of, the, of the society. Um, we, we find ourselves, and I, I say this because I've been not guilty, but in that same group of people, uh, we, we find ourselves depending on, on folks for a long period of time in surveying societies. Um, and uh, I guess that that's a good thing because we carry on some, some lineage and some body of knowledge that goes with us. And, of course, I guess with you're not as old as I am, I don't think, but some of these days soon we're going to be uh, out of the picture. So we hope we're, 
we're bringing along young people that have that same keen interest in not only the societies themselves, but projects like this one. That's correct. You know, and as you know, we wear many hats in our profession, and one of which is being a historian. We rely heavily on that history that's come before us to be able to effectively do our jobs. So it's, it's, it, it is important that among the, very, the various functions we do, being able to root back through history and find records is, is a worthwhile endeavor. And in this particular case, we're just trying to add to that legacy. Yeah, it's a little bit off topic, but, but in talking about that particular thing, sometimes it, it distresses me sometimes when I, peop- I hear people start talking about requirements for licensure these days. And, and of course, many of our states have the four-year degree requirement, which is a great thing. But sometimes when you hear people talk about it, they talk about it as though getting that education is the end of your preparation for licensure, and it isn't, because in pretty much any state I know, once you get that degree, you still have to go through uh, what I call a, 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 an internship. Right. Um, that's just, to, in reality, that's just the beginning of your process. I mean, exactly. All, all through our careers, we're finding out new things, and a lot of it has to do with being able to root through old records and find that inter- the information that makes the decision on where you define that line or set that corner. Absolutely. And and maybe later on, I want to be sure to cover the topic, maybe closer to the end of the show, we can talk a little bit about that importance of being interested in history and, and not stopping at the last deed behind you, so to speak. Right. <laughs> so right. so um, Let's get into the to the project itself. What was the first thing they had to do? Well, uh, the hardest part of this, obviously, knowing the story, the background of the story, we start looking for information of uh, the existence of this line. Uh, we've got the old uh, GLO notes for ground running this line, but perpetuating the evidence beyond that got to be pretty tricky. Uh, just a little bit of a background on the line itself. He, he arrives at the fort in, 18, in August of 1816, him and Sullivan and their crews, and they are supposed to meet up with the commissioners, uh, delegates that arranged this treaty with the Osage, as well as several chiefs of the tribe. And they're supposed to be in agreement that part of this running this line, which this is kind of historical aspect to lines, is you took the owner with you when you ran the line and showed him where it was. You put him on his land, so to speak. That was to be the case here, that the greater and little Osage tribes were supposed to follow with Brown to find out where this line was going to be so they could agree to it and, uh, you know, stay in their territories, avoid the conflicts with the uh, migration of the colonials and the uh, military people. And so out of that process, there was an agreement to meet at the fort. The two parties would head their separate ways. Uh, Brown's line was going to run from south from the fort. Sullivan's was going to go upriver on the Missouri for about 20 miles to the, end, to the mouth of the Kansas and then run north for 100 miles and then east back to the River Des Moines. And Brown's case here... Uh, his, he's in charge of not only uh, running the southern line and a piece of land around that called the Fort Square we'll talk about in a minute, but he's, his instructions were to determine first the latitude of the fort and also the variation of the compass that they both would run on, and that's an interesting little piece of the story here we'll 
hopefully we'll cover in a bit, but he spends a few days at the fort trying to determine variation. Goes through several sets of calculations to determine what this line's going to be that he runs. Comes up with a couple of different answers and decides pretty much that they're going to. He's going to take the one that's the result of the majority of the calculations. He's going to run on a variation of 11 and a quarters degree east. And him being the more competent uh, surveyor at the time, he also instructs Sullivan to run on this same line. Now in Sullivan's case. He doesn't make any corrections for the line as he runs north and east. Brown, periodically, as he runs south, is confirming those calculations. So he sets out from the fort on August 24th and proceeds to run this line south. His instructions are to run it in the fashion of the other surveys of the public lands, which is setting a post every mile and witnesses and blazing trees along the way, whatever that amounts to. So they set out from the fort in August of 1816, heading south, um, and runs into similar issues uh, that most surveyors run into. The, the terrain is not necessarily what you expect, and you have difficulties staying on course to a degree. The interesting part of this, you know, which is, is kind of hard for some of us to grasp, you know, Today, if I'm driving from St. Louis to Kansas City, I pretty much know what to expect along the way. These guys are out here in 1816, virtually in virgin territory to them, having no idea what they're going to run into. So as he heads south across Missouri here, he runs into a wide variety of types of lands. He starts out near the fort, and it's nearly all prairie for the first third of the journey. And then he starts entering the Ozark Mountains, which is not huge mountains by certain standards, but certainly rugged enough to cause difficulties trying to measure. And eventually ends up in the cane fields uh, in the bottoms of the Arkansas River to the point where the line's just too dense for him to even cut through. So the whole process of running this line for him is a peculiar experience in that it's not like what he was used to. This is a surveyor, literally a colonial surveyor, grew up and was educated in Virginia, was far more familiar with the descriptions and land layouts back there, and as he comes west here, now he's caught up in this rectangular system where cardinal directions are more important. And fortunately, he was well-trained in mathematics that he was able to make those calculations, determine the directions, the variation of the needle, and do an amazing job of staying on course here. In fact, we find later on in this story that uh, most of the surveyors that follow behind routinely run the sectionalized land on a variation of about 8 degrees east to north. And uh, we find out today that a lot of those lines are about 2 or 3 degrees out of true north. And Brown's line, amazingly, on his first half of the journey, or first third of the journey down there, he's only within about a degree of true north, and he makes a correction at about the 85th mile, about a third of the way down, pulls himself back within a half, half a degree of true south, which is a phenomenal feat running 1816, in my mind. So, to that end, um, you know, this guy clearly knew what he was doing, and was able to you know, run a party through this hostile environment where people are pretty much, you know, uh, 
not wanting them there, and they managed to successfully complete this mission in a span of about 45 days, which is uh, an amazing feat, averaging more or less six miles a day through some fairly rugged terrain along the way. But, uh, you know, I, I think that is part of the effort that we surveyors today don't necessarily appreciate. Yeah, you six miles a day, I'm mean, thinking about equipment and and process and all those kind of things is actually pretty remarkable to me. I mean, I can remember uh, long before we had the kind of equipment we have today, back when we were still using transits or even uh, uh, early versions of theodolites through some, and of course I'm a Virginian too, so I'm proud to know that Mr. Brown was a Virginian, but through some of the mountainous land where I grew up, six miles a day, even when I began, you know, 50 years ago almost, would would have been pretty remarkable, so that that sounds like a pretty big feat to me. I challenge any of us, our surveyors today that have their ATVs and GPS equipment to be able to maintain that kind of a uh, schedule through this kind of terrain. I doubt that we'd have much success doing that. Oh, by the way, I'm, I was curious I, in reading the, in some of the books uh, about some of the historical surveys and the number of people who were involved in the process. And we we think about survey parties in our own our own uh, mindset of what we know them to be. But I, I'm going to assume that this this probably was a fairly large group of people too, with all the all the ancillary folks you need just to keep yourself going. Right. I think at the end of his notes, he has uh, besides he he himself and the deputy, there's eight members of this party. I suspect they were supposed to have more, but that's probably about what they ended up with. Yeah. And actually, that sounds like a pretty small number if you yeah. if you think about it. Um, right. For a lot of reasons. Yeah, to not only just doing the work, but to supply the crew and, you know, uh, all the other ancillary equipment that you need to get this done, that's, that's a pretty small group, actually. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm certain even from the perspective of provisions they needed along the way, food, whatever, um, somebody has to be taking care of that, too. And if that, with that smaller group, that again, that's even more remarkable to me. Yeah, and then when you add a little piece on top of this, that the year they did this, 1816, is historically known as the year without a summer. From that period in time, there's reports of ice, ice in the river in May, snowing in June, and a peculiar phenomenon in their records they refer to as a dry fog, where the uh, sun was so obscured that it could be you could see sunspots with the naked eye. Wow. It appears that that was probably the result of a volcanic eruption in Indonesia the year before, so probably that might have been a massive out ash cloud. Mm-hmm. Compound that on the environment there, that, that really infect, affected uh, the crops that year to the point where the cr- price of grain skyrocketed before this. So not only did they uh, have to... You know, secure those crops and, and grain and so forth and for, the, for them and them, their uh, animals. But on top of that, probably foraging for food wouldn't have been any easier. It was probably a pretty tough year in general. We don't see that in the notes anywhere, but the 
painting the bigger picture of the, the remarkable effort it was here, that only magnifies the story, in my opinion. Oh, without a doubt. Well, believe it or not, we're 10 seconds away from our next break. So I, before I get into my next question or we, we go any further, let's go take that break. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Attention surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number. 800-438-0387 or go to quickstake.com that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E dot com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for Quickstakes today. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As we were going to, to break, Stan, you were talking about the difficulties, and particularly in that 1816 year of getting provisions and, and that kind of thing, um, the stagnation of, of crops due to the, all of the difficulties with the weather. And it brought to my mind the, the question about the inhabitants along their way. Were there a fair number of settlers in that area already? Not too many had reached quite this far. About 90 miles downriver from the fort, um, there are some fairly significant soils or good growing ground for that a lot of the settlers were heading towards. As you head south from this area, you're pretty much into the Ozark Plateau, and so the ground is... Uh, less uh, adaptive farming, so they, they weren't too many down there. Trap, fur traders and trappers would have been entering this area, but not the settlers or farmers that we know of. Uh, so I guess part that, of that, that story, go ahead. Too, I'm just, I was just going to fill that in. Part of what was driving this ex- rapid expansion to the West was as a result of those bounty land programs. Originally, M- Missouri wasn't going to be part of that system. They had land set aside in Arkansas, in Illinois, and in Michigan for this bounty program for the soldiers. But 
as they expand west, they start to discover the quality of the land in the area. Some of those areas weren't considered fit for farming and habitation, so they expanded this area in Missouri along the Missouri River, knowing there would be fairly decent soil there. That was kind of a quick addition to this process, and so when the federal government decided to implement this particular area into that program, it kind of drove the expansion uh, even quicker. So, so that was the some of the reasons some folks were were already there. Yeah, you were talking about the the land and getting into the into the mountains there. Uh, it reminded me of a a term I used to hear my grandfather use. Um, he would always talk about that piece of land being less tenable than another. Right. And and uh, that just brought back that memory to me when you were when you were saying that. Um, before we get into talking about the, the the evidence for the line, I noticed in in uh, the article that you had had written there was a an incorrect uh, or maybe a premature. Uh, uh, statement about the demise of his party at some point yes uh at the end of it at the end of this journey he ends the journey in october of 1816 and they proceed to return to their base which was st louis well obviously that's a pretty good float down the arkansas river and back up the mississippi and not too long about a little less than a month after their journey the territorial governor at the time, William Clark, of Lewis and Clark fame, receives word that the party had been massacred from a visiting Indian tribe. And so he writes a letter back to Secretary of War uh, Crawford stating uh, the news they've heard, and he's concerned that the party wasn't able to finish their, uh, their project and, and to get that line fully marked. So he was wondering what they were going to have to do, how much of the line might have gotten dark. Just right after he sends the letter, three days later, the party shows up. And as I mentioned in the article, to paraphrase another famous Missourian, Mark Twain, uh, the reports of their demise had been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a very interesting aspect of, I guess, probably not terribly uncommon back in, in that period of time when communication wasn't as it is today. As a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody on the show a week or two ago about that where even people our age who came came along at a time when communication certainly wasn't what it is now, but far advanced from where these guys were, um, it's it's just almost in, unfathomable to think about the challenges of communication during during that time. Right, and news was precious to everyone along the way. Every time you arrived in a new town or village, everybody wanted to know what's the latest you heard because. It's not like we had newspapers to that degree in the remote areas. So yeah, news of what had, had happened recently was uh, worthy a worthy event. Absolutely. So, in in pursuing the the project, um, was there a lot of information available that could help you try to find the evidence? Or, I mean, I know you were talking about that it was somewhat scarce. Yeah, well, you know, that's what kind of drove all this to begin with, is you're looking for a line that was marked 200 years ago. How easy is that going to be? Well, as you can imagine, for the most part, not that easy. Certainly find an original evidence. Now, if it had been perpetuated over time, 
like Sullivan's line, okay, it can be recovered. In this particular case, this thing is laid dormant for nearly two centuries. What was going to be available? That was part of the curiosity that drove us as to how much effort would that be. And what it boiled down to is there was only three or four instances of people actually recovering this line during the public land surveys. I mentioned earlier it was while they were running some of the uh, standard parallels through their correction lines. In the first particular case, there are, again, the land up around the Missouri River is considered of greater value than the land to the south. So there was quite an effort to push the fractionalized, or the sectionalized land up in that direction. So the first standard line that made it this far north was only uh, three townships south of the fort. It was run in 1817 by Charles McPherson. And oddly enough, as he's running west, his, you know, they were under contract to run particular sections. They would either run the outboundaries of the township or the sectionalized land within it. In this particular case, he was told to run these certain townships. So he runs his line west along the southern line of uh, Township 48 North there to the southeast corner of Section 36 in Range 30. gets to within a mile of this treaty line, but doesn't bother to tie it in. He turns north and runs the eastern line of the township, missing a great opportunity for us to find a piece of information. Oh, yeah. I noticed on one of the little uh, one of the little drawings you had in the article that shows that that corner, that southeast corner. Yeah, and, and where the and lines it, are different. That's it. These particular GLO township plats in this area, one or two of them, show evidence of this line. And it's to say there'd be a few ties as they were subdividing these sections that they'd actually cross that bounty line, and they'd even note the milepost where they had found it. So there's a few small instances here of its position tied to the public record, and we've relied heavily on that to try to get a feel for not only where this is, but how good of an effort Brown might have, you know, worked when he ran his line. The only point we really had a real good fix on was where he began all this work, which was the south gate of Fort Osage. There's a reconstructed fort there at the historical site, and uh, with the efforts, a lot of the fort, although it's not a complete uh, reconstruction of the actual dimensions of the fort, it's based on sound archaeological evidence, and so we've got a fairly good fix on where that was within the small era. Having that and knowing the direction he had, he took off and some other measurements we find along the way, along the way, we're trying to figure out how good of a job he did. This is our first occurrence to try to put that information back on in, in terms of the modern world. And then there's two or three other uh, standard lines that are run south of here, where similar evidence is made just as they tie in the standard line, they close on the treaty line for a while. So. Uh, we used uh, some of that evidence that we found out there. We had surveyors out in the western part of Missouri go out and look for some of the current government corners for those sections, and we tied those down and, you know, kind of did the math from the plants to kind of put projected points out on where this line would have been. And with this little bit of information and the use of uh, 
the PLS system, the Public Land Survey system on Google Earth, PLSCE. We also would uh, project coordinates on some of those corners to try to use as a mathematical check as we kind of build the system back into place. Literally what we've got is only four or five ties spanning about 30 miles apiece running north and south from the fort, or south from the fort. But we've even got any kind of effort of getting close to where this might be. And as it turns out, based on that information, we feel like we've got a pretty good search locations. We've, we've built out a small database. And some of this information is perpetuated in the article, but it's a little more uh, detailed in our database, where we were able to kind of determine from these four or five ties that Brown indeed does a very good job of staying on course. He's running within a degree of true south as he comes down there, plus kind of doing the math inversing back between these points in the fort we find out he's running at about a surplus of about two links per chain, roughly 2%. And he's consistent at least down there for the first 80 or 90 miles, the 34 ties that we have there, seems to be doing a fairly good job of staying on course, even allowing for his correction he makes at the 85th mile, where I mentioned earlier he actually pulls back within half a degree of true south. Right. So, where he's up in the prairie territory, he does a fairly good job staying online and consistent measurements. We're confident that some of the coordinates we've put in that area would allow surveyors to go out and try to, you know, search. Certainly when the leaves fall in, in the fall and we can kind of get out there and see the ground, we're hoping that uh, some surveyors will come out and try to make an effort to see if we can't recover one or two of these old mileposts. That'd be that'd be super. You were talking about the the project and you guys um, what you've been doing, and you told me earlier how many people he had on his crew. How many folks have you gotten involved in the in the project so far? Well, there's several on the committee that's participating in the work, but we've had three or four guys, that, surveyors of about our vintage, out there in that western part of the territory that spend several weekends going out recovering stuff. Fortunately, we've got a good database here in Missouri with our land, state land survey program. That records are readily available, and these guys are quite willing to share everything we need to help us out. Uh, connected with that, they gave us a survey they did down on the boundary between Missouri and Arkansas that's been invaluable looking for a point down there. I'll talk about that in a bit. But mostly they make these records available, and we've had a few guys get out there and tie in the GLO corners that we have now so we can do these calculations so we can make this information available to all surveyors. And that kind of initiated the bounty program that we created here. The bounty program is literally a bounty on some surveyor or his party finding one of these corners and perpetuating that. You know, this, this is late fallow for two centuries. We'd certainly like to make an effort. I hate to interrupt, Stan, but we're right at our break, so let's go take that and we'll pick back up on that topic when we come back. Okay. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. 
Seanstead, the best just got better. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, president of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.seanstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. In our last segment, Stan, I want to follow up with with some of the things you were talking about before we uh, went to break, maybe link the the treaty line to what its significance is in in today's world, and you'd begun to talk about the bounty program, and then maybe you could talk about any events you guys have coming up. Sure. Uh, what drove all this is we were wondering whether any of that evidence would be around. Obviously, the terrain that's been farmed would probably be most of those mounds or trees are obviously long destroyed, but a good deal of the southern portion of this area is probably still in its original state, that is to say mostly mountainous wooded terrain, so there is a chance some of this evidence is around. To that end, we had a surveyor down near Joplin, Missouri just a few years back recover an original mound that Brown set in 1823 when he ran the western line of Missouri, which surprised many of us to think that kind of evidence would still be around, but it was clearly uh, defined and supported by additional evidence, and they're kind of confident that that is an actual mound by Brown. So if evidence from 1823 survives, we speculate 1816 might be there too. So the program we initiated was bounty program was to offer a bounty to surveyors to kind of get out and look for these points. And should we fortunately run across one, we're going to add stipends on top of that to help them perpetuate that evidence through a corner restoration document, collaborate on an article suitable for publication, perhaps even do a presentation at one of our annual meetings. So we've tried to make an attractive offer here to get surveyors out there in their free time or on their weekends to go look for evidence. Did the discovery of that mound that you were just talking about um, give you some evidence perhaps to assuming that the same surveyor would use the same kind of markers or would, did you already have a pretty good idea of what to look for from his uh, 1816 survey? Well, unfortunately, it, according to the rules that they were given for laying out the land, if there were trees nearby, obviously they would set a post and witness trees as they passed by, but through the prairie where actually there's no timber around, uh, 
they were under direction to construct mounds in of a certain size and shape and perhaps even leave some evidence in there. Sometimes they'd use charcoal, perhaps some stones. Unfortunately, in this particular case, there's very few evidence of him building rock cairns at these corners or actually setting stones. So how, uh, how the chances of this stuff surviving, it's probably a little weak, but some of the evidence is still out there. Guys occasionally still find bearing trees for the original GLO surveys. So. Now, does the 1816 line have any kind of um, significance as a demarcation line at this point? I mean, I know the eastern boundary of Missouri is, is east of there. Um, so was that line ever maintained or uh, to be used as, as any type of a boundary? No, which is ironic that uh, the effort was made, the treaties were signed, uh, funds were expended to have this line marked out as if this was going to be a significant line. And again, at the time, this is the edge of the United States. Right. Who knows where they're going to go from here. Maybe this would line would last forever. It turns out that's not the case. But no, as far as we can tell, it's no longer a partition of land of any sort. So any, any uh, deed information or that kind of thing... Um, I'm thinking back now to a, to a, a, a Surveyor's Historical Society projects and the year they did the Fairfax line here in, in Virginia. And, of course, that line does have some significance. So it, that's what raised my question was in, in looking at the, at the map you had, I wondered if it was marking anything at all. No, unfortunately, uh, th this line is pretty much extinguished. Uh, oddly enough, it's probably, it's certainly the only line in Missouri of that caliber, and I'm not sure if there's many cases anywhere else in the country where such an effort was made to mark a line and it fully evaporates. So that line, was was that line when it was marked, um, was that within a certain section of the of Indian land, or was it the, the, the border, so to speak, of, of an Indian land for the treaty? It was the border. It's clearly defined in the 1808 and 1809 treaties as being the western edge of Missouri Territory and the eastern line of the lands reserved for the Osage tribes. Okay, so at that point in time, it, it had that significance. It just never carried forward from that. I see what That's you're right. It actually is also appears in the first petition for statehood for Missouri. It is defined as just that way. It starts at Fort Osage on the Missouri, runs due south to the Arkansas. But that's the last occurrence of it appearing anywhere in a public record. That is very interesting. Now, you were mentioning an event coming up. Yes, we have an event this Saturday up at the Fort, Fort Osage. That's in uh, a little northeast of Kansas City. And we're kind of having a kickoff event here. It's really close to the 200th anniversary of where these parties meet up here to stage to run these two lines. It's the weekend closest to the dates they start. I think they both start on the 24th of August running the lines. And so we're going to go up there and have a little celebration. And we're dedicating a monument up there to mark uh, the line at the fort and, and have a little presentation of uh, the history of the line. These folks at the fort, they've there's, there's a group called the Friends of Fort Osage that do uh, period reenactments of life in that times and at that particular fort. 
And ironically, they've got very little knowledge of the history of the surveying that was occurred out of there. Because for the few years this fort's in existence, this is pretty much where all the surveyors rendezvous to gain supplies and to, to head out on their quests as they're partitioning the land. And so, although a lot of surveyors go through there, there's very little evidence of anything they do. Uh, an interesting little piece here that we don't have a lot of time to discuss, but when this treaty's first formed, including in, the, in addition to defining this line, they reserve a two-league square tract of land around the fort for its settlement, farming, and, and they're expecting maybe a community at some point in time to develop around here which is an ironic thing in as much as the lead measurements kind of a default from the old French measurements that we see a lot in eastern Missouri in the Illinois River and Mississippi River Valley, the area known as the Illinois Territory, has a lot of French heritage. And a lot of our original early establishments there start out with French measurements and the lead being one of them. This is the only occurrence I've seen in western Missouri of a French measurement being written into a definition. And that tract of land today is known as the Six Mile District up near Sibley, Missouri. And we're going to make an effort, too, to try to recover that. The very first thing Brown does after he determines declination is to run this two-league square around the fort. And so we've got some evidence there that we're also going to be searching for to see if we can't define it. Unfortunately, again, when the land's sectionalized, they pretty much run right past that. So this area known as the Six Mile District is mostly in name only. The locals there know of its existence, but they don't really know where it is. So with those existing uh, pieces of evidence, they should have stuck with what we did here in, in the colonies and just have our lines run wherever they are rather than be in squares, I guess, right? <laughs> well, up in that area, it might have uh, worked out better. Uh, you know. Again, too, there's a lot of uh, Spanish land grants that are east of here, not quite out to the fort, but a little further east of there, that date back to before the Louisiana Purchase. Land was possessed out there to a degree. Possess, uh, you know, petitions were applied to the Spanish government uh, to acquire tracts of land out there to farm on. So some of those old boundaries linger east of here, but never out quite this far west. Right. You know, just this conversation that we're having here just, I think, points out and exemplifies a bit the importance of, of history, not only to the country and the public, but certainly to surveying. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's as we mentioned earlier, that uh, it's part of our job. And in my particular case, I've always had some interest in history, but this has certainly allowed me to expand on that. I, I've find myself even more curious about the things that came before. Yeah, I would agree. Well, I don't, what have I left out? I, we've got a few minutes left here, so I don't want you to go away having something on your mind we don't, we haven't talked about. Uh, I think we've covered most of it. Uh, this event's going to be, like I said, a kickoff ceremony. We've made a lot of this information available on our state's website. So those that would like to follow up more of this, read my article that's in the uh, quarter, last quarterly issue of Missouri Surveyor. And then it's also got a link to the database we've set up with a lot of the details on here, the Brown's Notes and the original GLO flats and some of our calculations, coordinates, search coordinates for going out to look for some of these stuff. 
we've tried to make this available, and we're hoping to find interest that people would spend a weekend or two going out and see if they can't recover some of this evidence. And that's on the, the State Society website? Yes, uh, www.missourisurveyor.org. And the first thing you'll see on that home page there is the, the description of the bounty program. That also happens to be a link to our database. It's a Dropbox file set up that access can be readily gained to all the information we've got out there. Well, I know you're you're not done with this project totally, but I'm curious. Uh, you guys really have a lot of activity going on, maybe in the last couple of minutes. Do you have another project you're looking forward to down the road? Well, we're always looking at these anniversaries coming up, and unfortunately, you know, uh, in 2014, we celebrated the founding of St. Louis, its 250th anniversary, which was an interesting case because it, it addressed some of the things we talked about. That's pretty much French heritage there, laying out the city in French blocks, uh, similar to the way New Orleans was laid out. And last year, 2015, we celebrated the fifth principal meridian in Brown's history. 16th this year. Coming forward, there, we don't have anything in the immediate future here that I'm aware of being as significant as this, but coming forward, we're going to be celebrating the history of Brown's running the western and southern line of Missouri. And also, he at one point in time lays out the entire Santa Fe Trail, all 845 miles of that. That's wow. coming up a few years later, and again, that begins at Fort Osage. So lot, lots of things to uh, to look forward to and and keep everybody busy going ahead. So you'll you'll have to keep me. By the way, oh, but before I forget, thanks for being with me today. It's been a great a great exercise and a lot of fun and and very interesting to hear this story. So I really do appreciate you being with me. And let's be sure to stay in touch on all the things that that you guys are doing because I love having you back on the show anytime you have something you want to talk about for sure. Yeah, you're welcome for the attention today, and it's certainly been my pleasure. I enjoy it. Yeah, it's always good to to go to these kind of programs. Sometimes we get caught up in all the new technology. We're, we we don't go back on the, the older things the way we should, so I'm glad to have this opportunity and look forward to doing it again. So, again, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been great. You're welcome. Take care. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.